Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and I have a question for you. What contributes more to your carbon footprint, the car you drive or the food on your kitchen table? That's a matter of lively debate, and we're going to sink our teeth into that on the show today. Let's start at the top. The biggest source of global emissions comes from powering buildings of all sorts, about 30%, according to the U.S. EPA. Our cars and our stomachs are next, at somewhere about 15 to 20%. The answer for you personally, of course, depends on how you roll and how you dine. Whether you drive a scooter, an electric car, or a gas-guzzling SUV, your food food footprint also depends on how much meat and dairy you stock in your refrigerator. The documentary Cowspiracy contends that animal agriculture is the number one source of climate-killing pollution. The film, which was executive produced by Leonardo DiCaprio and released on Netflix last year, essentially says humanity is toast unless we go vegan. The notion of a sustainable meat production... It's a sham, the film claims. Over the next hour, we'll discuss cowspiracy and other questions about producing food in an era of climate disruption. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club today, we're pleased to have three guests to debate good and bad beef and broader questions about sustainable eating. Kip Anderson is co-director of Cowspiracy and founder of Alm Films and Media, a nonprofit focused on promoting thrivability, compassion, and harmony for all life. Nicolette Hahn Nyman. <clears throat> Nicolette Hahn Nyman is a vegetarian who raises cattle north of San Francisco. A critic of industrial meat production, she wrote Righteous Pork Chop, Finding a Life and Good Food Beyond Factory Farms, and Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production. Jonathan Kaplan is director of the Food and Agriculture <laughs> Program. <laughs> the Warriors game was over. This is great. (laughs) Jonathan Kaplan is director of the Food and Agriculture Program at the NRDC. He leads initiatives to reduce antibiotic use in the livestock industry and eliminate toxic chemicals from this food supply. Please welcome them to Climate One. (laughs) Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, let's begin in 2006. The Food and Agriculture Organization issues a seminal report called Live... Stocks Long Shadow. Tell us about that report and what it said. So um, up until that point, there wasn't a lot of talk about livestock as a major contributor to uh, global warming. And in 2006, the Food and Agriculture Organization published the report Livestock Long Shadow, which basically said it was all livestock together um, contributed about 18% of total global warming gases globally. Now, the figure looked at a lot of issues in defending beef, I argue that a lot of the figures should not have been included in that 18% because, for example, about 38% of that total 18% was actually from land use changes. So it wasn't actually directly related to livestock raising. It was primarily deforestation in Brazil, Indonesia, and Sudan. 
And there were other issues. But it was a it was it was a pivotal moment in this discussion because um, the media really um, got a hold of that idea. And in the in their headline in their press release, they said that uh, livestock actually caused more global warming emissions than than auto or transportation. And they later acknowledged that that was actually incorrect. But in their initial press release, they said that. Though there's a group called the Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research. Uh, It's a research consortium of universities. They did a study that included fertilizer storage and packaging. And that group of research scientists says that food production, storage, fertilizer, packaging amounts to a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. So... There depends. are obviously there are lots of different numbers. It depends on how you calculate it and what you include and what you attribute to what. Um, but the current number for the United States, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, for all agriculture. So again, that's agriculture that doesn't include all of the aspects of food production and storage and so forth. But they say agriculture is nine percent total, and all ruminants are about a quarter of that. So it's about two and a half percent. For the United States, and the the international uh, intergovernmental panel on climate change says that all agriculture is somewhere between ten and fifteen percent. So the numbers are a lot smaller than th- those are the generally accepted numbers. Those are the official numbers. There are all kinds of other numbers coming from various sectors. Let's yeah. uh, uh, before we get to the uh, we're going to get into this. We're not going to debate uh, percentages all night. I guarantee you. Uh, but I do want to get uh, a baseline here. Let's. Adam, roll clip one. We're going to show you some of Cowspiracy and then have Kip and Jonathan respond. I thought I was doing everything I could to help the planet. But then, with one friend's post, everything changed. The post sent me to a report online published by the United Nations stating that raising livestock produces more greenhouse gases than the emissions of the entire transportation sector. This means that the meat and dairy industry produces more greenhouse gases than the exhaust of all cars, trucks, trains, boats, planes combined. Cows and other farmed animals produce a substantial amount of methane from their digestive process. Methane gas from livestock is 86 times more destructive than carbon dioxide from vehicles. Here, I've been riding my bike everywhere to help reduce emissions, but it turns out there's more to climate change than just fossil fuels. I started doing more research. The UN, along with other agencies, reported that not only did livestock play a major role in global warming, it is also the leading cause of resource consumption and environmental degradation destroying the planet today. Kip Anderson, let's have your comment. That mentions the report... Well, then what you see later in the film is actually the the number is closer to 51% according to the World Bank, a study done by the World Bank. And that is actually the only study that has been done. World Watch. World Watch. It's the only study that's been done that was calculated using the greenhouse, greenhouse gas protocol, which is the global standard for calculating greenhouse gases, which is the protocol, uh, which is the standard recognized by all around the world of, of people who have no ventured into <coughs> specific industries where it takes everything in consideration. It does take um, bio, uh, the loss of rainforest into consideration. What would happen if uh, you were allowed to have these forces grow back, the lungs grow back, and it taken everything, the complete cycle of, of raising livestock for food. And so whether it's 51%, 18%, 18%, um, you know, it's debatable, but it's, it's, part of it is theoretical because no one really knows knows it. Uh, does know, but if we gave a chance for the planet to to grow back um, the native forest lands, we could actually have a chance to uh, really see a huge difference. Jonathan Kaplan, it's it's big, six, whatever the, the number is, it's big, and animal agriculture has a big impact on the planet. I think that's the bottom line for your listeners. Um, livestock industry is big when it comes to carbon, when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I do uh, wonder about the study that says it's 51%. I don't, you know, I'm not convinced it's the biggest. When you look at the U- United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, EPA, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, all those agencies put the number more like you know, 14 15%. Um, but that's still a really big number. So you know, I don't want to like, dust that under the rug. And I think um, most Americans probably don't realize that the number's as big as it is. Let's go to a second clip. There's another part of this film, Cowspiracy, we're talking about today, Climate One. Uh, So let's roll clip number two, which is about how the environmental groups responded to this. How is it possible I wasn't aware of this? I thought this information would be plastered everywhere in the environmental community. 
I went to the nation's largest environmental organizations' websites, 350.org, Greenpeace, Sierra Club, Climate Reality, Rainforest Action Network, Amazon Watch, and was shocked to see they had virtually nothing on animal agriculture. What was going on? Why wouldn't they have this information on their main page? It seemed the main focus for many of these groups was natural gas and oil production, with fracking being the latest hot issue due to water usage and contamination. Hydraulic fracturing for natural gas uses an incredible amount of water. A staggering 100 billion gallons of water is used every year in the United States. But when I compared this with animal agriculture, raising livestock just in the U.S. consumes 34 trillion gallons of water. And it turns out the methane emissions from both industries are nearly equal. Jonathan Kaplan, is there an environmental... He didn't mention NRDC, which yeah, is where you work. Right. So <laughs> there's no conspiracy. Let me just say that now. Um, uh, you know, the, the, film, the film alleges, which I think is absurd, that you know, somehow NRDC and other green groups are taking money, perhaps, from the livestock industry to hide, to cover up uh, the impacts of this industry, which you know, is, is pretty upsetting um, as an allegation and completely without merit. And in fact, NRDC and probably lots of the other groups um, discussed in the film have done a huge amount of work over the years challenging the livestock industry, challenging their pollution, their overuse of antibiotics, the fact that these you know, confined feedlots are basically huge cities worth of manure that are completely untreated and are despoiling um, rivers and creeks and, and, and really destroying communities where they're, where they're located. So I want to just get that out of the way. You know, as you said earlier, we do have a lot to agree on here. Um, we do need to reduce our meat consumption and we need to help this industry, um, force this industry to clean up its act. Um, I don't think it's good enough to say, you know, let's all just stop eating meat and hope everybody agrees, and that's going to be our strategy. That's not going to be a winning strategy. That's going to be part of the solution, but we also have to be there holding this industry accountable and encouraging entrepreneurs who have a more sustainable way to raise animals. That is a really important part of the story, and we have to uh, celebrate them. Kip Anderson, your response to the, the suggestion that environmental groups do a lot on farming and, and cattle grazing and deforestation, et cetera, that you overlooked that and painted a simplistic kind of conspiratorial thesis but in your film. Before we go to Kip, could I just jump one more? To follow up on what I just said, there's one other really important point in the story, which is that the environmental groups, including NRDC and Sierra Club and others profiled in this film, are mostly working here in the United States where, you know, as Nicolette said, the, the greenhouse gas impact from the livestock industry is relatively small. It's only probably 3 or 4%, right? Transportation and power generation is two-thirds of the American carbon footprint. That, that's the big source, and that's where you see the vast majority of the resources from these organizations going. And, by the way, we've had incredible progress there. We have doubled the fuel efficiency of the American fleet, vehicle fleet, and with the new president's clean carbon uh, power plan, we are on track to slash emissions 30% from that sector by 2030. So that is a really big win, and we're very proud of that work. Kip Anderson, on the, uh, the selection of data and the conspiracy thesis, your response. Um, so raising animals for food, animal agriculture, specifically, say, for Natural Resources Defense Council, it's, you know, it's protecting natural resources. This one industry is a one-stop shop for, if not the number one leading, uh, number one or t number two leading cause of deforestation, water consumption, water depletion, ocean dead zones. Uh, we've already admitted uh, somewhere up there of, 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 of greenhouse gases, wildlife killing, the list goes on and on, a one-stop shop. And you go on these, these, these um, environmental groups' websites, and you see this tucked away, tucked away deep, deep, deep in these organizations' websites. You can't even see it. It needs to be on the forefront. Attention, newsflash, we just found out this one industry is destroying <coughs> our entire planet on one single issue. And the definition of a conspiracy is a group of people gathering together of doing something harmful. And when, when this industry knows, and I know NRDC knows, I know they've seen our film, they, and I know Greenpeace knows in the, in the Rainforest Action Networks, they know this information, and they are not telling it to the public. And we, just, we discussed, uh, you know, when we were in the green room, um, said that it's not, again, it's such a big word, a win, a win, um, the, the word win is so, used so many times, a win, a win program or a win uh, uh, um, 
thing to, to, to tell people. And what a win campaign, sorry, a win campaign means is if it'll gather more donors and more money to, the, to, their, um, to their nonprofit. But when the reality is, all we have to do is not tell people to eat, eat, stop eating meat and dairy. It's just tell them the information that this is what is being caused. And that's not being done. So that's very harmful to the planet. So what I think I heard you there say is that they underemphasize it, that they don't emphasize it enough. And it's, it's harmful, and they don't underemphasize it enough, and it's partly because of their business model that they don't touch these issues. Uh, imagine imagine um, the Lung Cancer Defense Council, LCDC, and you go on their website, and you know, the headline is, um, you know, stay away from asbestos and don't put your mouth in front of the exhaust. Um, this is the best way to not get lung cancer. And they don't mention hardly anywhere about tobacco smoking. I mean, that's the equivalent of going on at these, these, um, these environmental groups. And I do give credit to NRDC that they actually do mention it. Whereas Greenpeace, you have to dig deep and where we do a fun challenge um, to, to people's, see if you can find this without typing in search on the search engine. See if you can find somewhere about uh, raising animals for food, what's just how it's destroying the planet. Nicolette Hahnemann, I received an email today from Anna LePay, who's author of Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork. And she wrote that environmentalists were silent for quite a while on food. They had a blind spot, not because of a conspiracy, but she admits they had a blind spot. She says the film is ridiculous, the conspiracy claim is ridiculous, and it's dangerously misleading, but enviros were late to the food game. They were behind the curve on this. Well... There's, there is an aspect of truth to that. But in 2000, I was um, charged by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I was a senior attorney for the Environmental Group Waterkeeper Alliance, specifically to work on environmental problems related to the livestock industry. That's back in 2000. And we worked with all of the major environmental groups in the United States. And I led that campaign for two years before leaving that job. But that was the beginning of a lot of um, environmental groups working, focusing on the environmental impact um, from livestock production. But I think the whole problem with the premise um, of the film and of sort of a lot of the discussion that's been had already is that livestock is inherently problematic, when in fact that's absolutely not true at all, because it's really about how it's done. And if it's done poorly, it can have a negative environmental impact. If it's done well, it's actually an essential part of sustainable food production. And and having now worked on this issue for the last 15 years, I would say I think that there are three keys to sustainable food production, and those are water, soil, and microbiology. And in each of those three categories, livestock play an essential role. They play an essential role in optimal soil, in building soil fertility and in soil health, and especially the microbiology of the soil and in the whole hyd- hydrological system of our world of our world and of our world food system. And there's a lot that's been written about this. I think this is actually the core of where the sustainable food movement needs to go. And this is totally ignored in the suggestion that we need to be moving towards veganism. So when you get rid of animals, you're actually throwing the baby out with the bathwater because they're an essential part of sustainable food production. I want to... um... We're going to get into free-range food and other topics. We're talking about cowspiracy at Climate One. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle, at Climate One. We're going to roll our third clip from cowspiracy. And this is Michael Pollan talking about the business model of environmental groups. I think they think it's... I think they focus-grouped it, and it's a political loser. In terms of... Yeah, because they're, they're membership organizations, you know, a lot of them. They're looking to maximize the number of people making contributions. And if they get identified as being anti-meat or challenging people on their everyday habits, that's something that's so dear to people that uh, it will hurt with their fundraising. Jonathan Kaplan, strong words from a very respected food guru saying that groups like NRDC don't want to be food nags. Is he right? Well, first of all, I... I'm very unhappy with the suggestion that we're sort of profit, you know, motivated, right? The people at NRDC could be making a lot more money working for some private company somewhere. So we're not doing this to raise money. Um, We are a membership organization, and we are a policy change organization. To change policy in this country, you need members. 
you need to have a large group of people behind you, and we do. We have 1.3 million members and online advocates behind our work, and that allows us to be persuasive in the halls of Congress or with regulators and so on. So yes, we do have to make sure that our messages are inclusive, and we don't think it's necessarily a good strategy to be out there with the message telling people that they're the problem. Now, does that mean we should be silent about it? No. We need to give people the facts, as Kip said. We need to let people understand that their food choices matter, and they matter a lot. And we need to encourage people to take steps to you know, move down the uh, spectrum toward a more sustainable diet. But we don't think it's necessarily the best strategy to come out of the gate and tell everybody that they have to go to zero animal products consumption today. And it's really important to note that Michael Pollan is, in fact, an omnivore and has repeatedly written and spoken about the importance of livestock in the food system to, in getting towards a more sustainable food system. So when we're talking about Michael Pollan, it's really important to note he's not a vegan and he doesn't believe in veganism as the solution for food system problems. He thinks we're just eating too much. Kip Anderson. In our our film, Michael Pollan says himself that if, and this is a big part of the film, a lot of people think of terms of sustainability as more of privilegeable. It can feed a certain amount of people, that top 1% to make themselves feel good about eating, quote-unquote, sustainable grass-fed beef, where an inner-city youth or or poor urban areas can't come close to that. But Michael Pollan, on a global level, when we asked him, what is the most sustainable amount of meat and dairy, not even meat or dairy, meat and dairy, he said two ounces per week. This is grass-fed beef's uh, guru, and even he is, is, is admitting how impactful with 7 billion people, not 1 billion, 1.5 billion, which was 100 years ago, this discussion would make sense. But now we're 7 billion people. We don't have enough land. He also said that you guys edited his interview in such a way that it was very unrepresentative of his full remarks. He said exactly Which that. is true of a lot of the people that are in the film, and I've talked to several of them we're, directly. And we're actually In addition release- to that, it's important to note that about a billion of the world's poorest people are entirely dependent on livestock. So when you act as though this is some rich people that are just a privileged few that get to eat well-raised meat, that's an absurdity. We're talking... (laughs) We're talking... You know, it gets brought back a lot of times. Well, what about this, you know, this, this Aboriginal d- d- group or some, some, uh, some tribe in South America? For the majority of people, for the majority of people even watching this film of this discussion... We're not talking about these people. We're talking about everyone, everyone, the normal person eating grass-fed beef, feeding America on grass-fed beef. And these numbers that we came up with about land use, this was from the MarkaGuard uh, grass-fed beef. Um, and actually, the MarkaGuards are here tonight, yeah, so I, I think them. they're going to have and some things that they want to say. And I, and I, after and I love, they're an incredible family. And the, and they when sure I, are. They are. They're amazing. Yeah. Um, when we, we came up with the numbers from their calculations, what, what they told us, we came on the low end. It comes down to land use. With 7 billion people, when you have one acre, and this is a lush area, beautiful area they live in, an ideal situation is one cow per 10 acres where they are. Imagine that, um, you know, where, where they have another ranch where it's around 50 acres for one cow. We did calculations based on that, and if just to feed only the U.S. population, it's in our film, you'd have to destroy every single square inch up into Canada, all the way through Central America into South America to feed just the U.S. consumption if we switch to grass-fed beef based on their calculations. A lot of people think we came up with this information from the film. A lot of this is from the industry itself. The same thing that happened with dairy. The CEO of Clover Organic Dairy, probably the most revered or one of the top two or three revered um, organic dairy farms in probably the entire world, the CEO says this is not sustainable. The, the, The farm that we went to, you know, the, the best farm that they could show us. The farmer himself says this is absolutely not sustainable. He didn't say this is not sustainable. He says if we have to feed people on dairies the way dairies are going, we're going to have to clear houses and clear entire towns, quote unquote. So and he what that's on saying that. is that maybe we need to do things in a different way or that maybe not the way things are done in one place can be replica- replicated worldwide. That doesn't mean he's saying dairy is not sustainable. That's what's so absurd about the film is it takes one idea and then it extracts it over the world. And in fact, the statistics in the film, which are your, your statistics advisor, Dr. Richard Openlander, who's a dentist, a vegan dentist from Portage, Michigan, he's the guy who created these statistics that you keep citing. But in fact, 
none of the statistics in the film, like about the land use, are accepted by First of all, they weren't generated by any legitimate people who know anything about this topic. But none of them are accepted. They're talking about their ranch. You can't extrapolate that. It's one of the most lush. They live on Monterey Peninsula. It has nothing to do with the world food system. That's what's so absurd about the statistics in your film, is you take... The back of the envelope calculation, then you have a dentist from Kalamazoo, Michigan, recalculate that for the world food system. And that's the basis of your statistics and so many of your statements. That is what is so absurd about this film. It is made by people who do not understand anything about sustainability. The word soil, which is actually the foundation of sustainable food production, is almost entirely absent from the film. And when, uh, we, when, when you talk to somebody like um, Gabe Brown, who's a farmer in North Dakota, who's become sort of a model of sustainable food production the world over, he says you absolutely have to have animals to have healthy soils and to build the microbiology of the soils. Yet none of this is explained in your film because, frankly, you don't understand it. <laughs> Let's, um, we're talking about That's the, the film. Thing we're talking about the film Cowspiracy at Climate One with Nicolette Hahn Nyman, Kip Anderson, a co-director of the film. I want to ask Jonathan Kaplan from NRDC to comment on this uh, point that grass-fed animal agriculture does not scale. It's it's limited to be something just for Berkeley, Boulder, Boston. That it's not something that can feed the heartland of America because it takes too much land. Well, first of all, if you drive by an industrial feedlot or park your car out in front of one for five minutes, you're going to be pretty motivated to figure out how to make pasture-based cows work, right? You know, this idea that it's either, um, you know, we we should go to zero meat or accept the um, existing system is a a false dichotomy. We, We definitely have to reduce our meat consumption. I tend to believe that we cannot have all the cows that are on the, um, you know, in the country today on pasture, but that doesn't mean um, we should have zero. And I think the, you know, the, the, the challenge is to get as many animals as we can out of these massive industrial feedlots and um, ratchet down our demand for, for meat and produce the cows that we are going to eat in a much more sustainable way, and that's mostly going to be a pasture-based system. Now, I'll also say that just putting the cows on grass is not going to solve all our problems because, guess what, we have severe overgrazing on half or more of all the rangelands in this country today. And when you have overgrazed land, you've got um, invasive species being introduced, you're going to be losing soil, um, you're going to be losing carbon dioxide as a result of all that. So we have to also incentivize more sustainable or better managed grazing that's more based on grass productivity, um, and that's going to produce the animals um, you know, faster in a more healthy and economically viable way as well. We're going to go to our lightning round in which we ask each of the guests today to answer a brief yes or no question, uh, starting with Jonathan Kaplan. The issue environmentalists really don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole is human population, yes or no? Wow, ambush. LAUGHTER <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think uh, that question is above my or below my pay grade. Um, the, uh, above my pay grade, uh, you know. That's right. I, we're doing yes yeah, or no, yeah. so that you can so, you can, uh, you, can yes or no. you can punt on that one. You can uh, Kip Anderson. Most people in developing countries would continue to eat animal protein even if they were aware of negative impacts on the Earth's climate. Uh, yes or no? Totally agree. Yeah, it's extremely addictive. Uh, Nicolette Hahn Nyman, eating a hamburger, which in America or just about everywhere else is probably made with industrial meat, is one of the most damaging things a person can do to the Earth's climate. Yes or no? Absolutely not true. Jonathan Kaplan, NRDC accepts donations from companies in the agricultural and food industries. Yes or no? No. Kip Anderson, in making Cowspiracy, you modeled facts to your vegan thesis rather than going where the data and story led you. Yes or no? Absolutely not. Nicolette Hahn Nyman, the grazing practices you advocate for keeping water and carbon in the soil are too complicated for most ranchers. Oh, definitely not true. I mean, you just have to look at somebody like Gabe Brown, and he's, he's, he's not uh, a soil scientist, and he's showing the world how this can be done on basically any farmer ranch. Jonathan Kaplan, uh, NRDC contributes to deforestation by mailing paper solicitations and other materials to a 2.4 million <laughs> members and activists. 
Yes or no? Uh, what time does the show end? <laughs> 34 you know, minutes. Again, yes, there's an impact to that, but we are a grassroots membership-based organization, and that still is a really important way to build our membership and, and build our power. And we, we also fly our staff to meetings around the country. That has a huge carbon input, input impact. Um, we run our computers and so on. So we do the best we can, but yes, there are environmental costs to it. Kip Anderson, managed carefully, livestock can be part of a balanced ecosystem that serves humans and nature. A hundred years ago, maybe now 7 billion people, absolutely not. Um, Jonathan Kaplan, cowspiracy exaggerates the carbon pollution coming from animal agriculture. Yes or no? I think so. Last one, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman. Some environmentalists are preachy and righteous. Hmm. Yes. Anyone sitting here on the stage today that fits that description? Be careful. (laughs) There are people who think that they're environmentalists that are preachy and self-righteous. All right. Uh, 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 That ends our lightning round. How did did they do? I think they did pretty well. Let's give them a round for (laughs) me. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Agriculture, including meat production, is a big part of the worldwide climate change puzzle. But in Paris last December, it wasn't high on the list of topics for negotiators. Frank Reisberman, CEO of the Consortium of International Agricultural Researchers, says that's because it's hard to reach consensus among countries with such disparate needs. Uh, There's a big divide between the people that come from California or the U.S. who want to talk about mitigation in agriculture and the countries like India or many of the other developing countries who say, look, we didn't do this. We are being impacted. Small-scale agricultures, poor smallholders, are among the most vulnerable to the impact of climate change. So they don't want to mitigate they want help with adaptation. Therefore, indeed, uh, we have to find win-win solutions to bring people to the table. Indeed, if you eat a hamburger in California, if you eat, uh, say, meat that was raised with corn, then you have a very different part in the whole climate puzzle than if you're eating uh, you know, a much smaller piece of meat from a cow that was grass-fed in the rangelands of Ethiopia. So we have a very different background and perspective on what the issues are. It's true that we have food systems that are very unsustainable for lots of reasons. We use too much energy, we use too much water, we degrade the land. And yes, uh, agriculture is a big contributor worldwide. Agri-food systems produce as much as a quarter of all greenhouse gases, and livestock can be roughly half that. So yes, uh, we believe agriculture can become part of the solution, but it will have to be done in a way that is a solution for both adaptation and mitigation. Frank Reisberman of Seagar spoke with Greg Dalton at the Global Landscapes Forum last December in Paris. Now back to our live program at the Commonwealth Club. We're talking um, at Climate One about the film Cowspiracy. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, a vegetarian rancher in Marin, Jonathan Kaplan from the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Kip Anderson, co-producer, co-director of the film Cowspiracy. Let's talk about uh, aquaculture. Uh, Kip Anderson, a lot of people think that, uh, well, first of all, there's about 2 or 3% vegetarians in, in the United States. A lot of them go back to eating meat after some time. I've uh, talked to a number of people say, I'm a vegetarian bull, but I eat fish. Now, I don't know if that me- makes the definition of vegetarian, but let's talk about aquaculture. We've been talking mainly about cows, animals on legs. Let's talk about fish. Aquaculture is terribly destructive. Aquaculture, one of the biggest aquacultural farms in the world is in Sydney. I remember going to discussion there, and I asked, how much fish are your fish eating? Because fish eat fish to produce the food. And it is so incredibly inefficient when most of our um, entire fisheries are completely depleted of fish in our oceans. You know, as they say, by 2048, we're not going to essentially have any fish in the oceans. Yeah, we're extracting fish to feed other fish to grow vegetables when we can do veganic farming and skip the middleman of fish and actually just grow the plants by themselves. Jonathan Kaplan, uh, uh, shrimp farms, incredible environmental devastation. Where is NRDC on uh, sustainable aquaculture? Can we grow 
fish protein in, in caged areas because we've basically fished out all the oceans. Well, Greg, I've got bad news for you. You got the land food guy on your panel here tonight. Um, we have a whole oceans program, and I know people who can um, answer that question. But um, you know, I, we, we are obviously very concerned about the environmental impacts caused from aquaculture. Um, you know, and and the point that Kip made. One of the issues that um, I'm worried about there is antibiotic use. There's a lot of antibiotics used mm-hmm. in aquaculture, and that's um, antibiotic resistance um, is now one of the largest threats facing this nation and, and the planet. Um, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have said that if trends continue, um, we are facing the potential loss of modern medicine as we know it. We're not going to have drugs to be able to do basic surgeries and chemotherapies and treat basic infections. And guess what? 70% of all the antibiotics sold in this country are sold for livestock use. So that's another big ticket item that we have to solve. Um, but I will also say that it's hard to tackle that problem if your message is just don't eat any meat at all. Because we have to persuade this industry to stop using their drugs today. And if you go at them and say, and by the way, we don't think you should exist at all, um, it makes it a hard sell. So how about Kip Anderson? Is, it's, uh, are you saying get rid of all the cows, don't kill any cows? I think... I get the sense you're coming at from a humane perspective that killing animals is wrong, that people, vegans, it's, there's a moral issue underneath this, I get the sense. It wasn't really... Well, what Keith brought up, and it just reminds me over and over and over, and we're doing a new film on health, is the, the similarities between the animal agriculture industry, raising animals for food, and the tobacco industry. The exact same thing is coming out right now that happened in the tobacco industry 20 years ago. It was, un- it was covered up for so long, and then all of a sudden a wave came of truth. And so, you know, about the antibiotics, it's, it's true. It's one of the biggest... Uh, um, dangers of facing the entire planet. One outbreak could kill millions and millions. But to say, again, not to tell people not to smoke or not to, not to eat meat. We're just asking them, it's like asking Marlboro, let's ask Marlboro to not put chemicals in their cigarettes. Why not just say, hey, let's not stop smoking cigarettes. Let's skip. We're not babies. We don't need to do baby steps. We're big adults. <laughs> I, I think there's a, there's a huge problem with, with um, the suggestion that repeatedly that this is what's motivating environmental advocacy, the fact that it's too hard to tell people not to do this, that optimally, that sort of Jonathan's comments are sort of suggesting that, and I I find that really troubling, because as someone who's been working on environmental issues for a long time and who majored in biology and worked as an environmental lawyer, I can tell you that there is no evidence at all that the optimal food system from an ecological standpoint excludes animals entirely. And in fact, there's a great deal of evidence to the contrary. And I think the one piece of um, sort of written literature I really want people to look at is that a new study that was just published by Dr. Richard Teague and Dr. Lal, Dr. Ratan Lal, who's one of the leading soil scientists in the world, which is entitled The Role of Ruminants in Reducing Agriculture's Carbon Footprint in North America. This is a brand new peer-reviewed study in the Journal of Soil and Water Conservation, and they conclude that actually having more ruminants on the landscape in the United States would be a step forward from a climate change perspective. So this is not at all, there is no factual or scientific basis for the claim that the optimal system excludes animals. It's just not true. Jonathan Kaplan, can cows be part of a carbon solution? Yes, but we've got to have fewer cows. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that shows when you have, when you have uh, crop livestock integrated farms, you can close the loop on nitrogen. The farmer doesn't have to buy synthetic fertilizer to put on the crops um, that he can grow or she can grow the feed for the animals. It's, you know, it's a much more sustainable system than the one we've got now. Well, and the, the basis of this article, which is, which is written by... Uh, a dozen very well-respected scientists and researchers in this field is that basically when you have the animal impact, you have all kinds of benefits to the soil, and especially in the soil microbiology, and that you actually can't have that absent those ruminants. Um, Kip Anderson, a lot of people switch from dairy to other sources of milk, almond milk, uh, almonds use a tremendous amount of water. Uh, one thing I've learned in environmental uh, inquiry the last 10 years is sometimes the solution is worse than the first thing. Um, so how do you feel about people say, okay, no dairy, but then we're drinking almond milk. 
and growing almonds in a drought in California. Well, what, if you watch the film, to make one gallon of cow's milk takes upwards of a thousand <clears throat> gallons of water. There's absolutely no comparison when you compare that to soy milk. Almond milk definitely takes a lot. I don't, we don't recommend uh, to anyone drinking almond milk every day. You can drink soy, you can drink cashew, you can drink coconut milk. And they are incredibly, incredibly more sustainable, not only more sustainable, but the ethical choice as well. No splitting up of, of, of you know, the mother-child mother relationship, of the veal industry, of, of um, you know, eventually when the cow, after it finishes, as you see in our film, after it finishes producing milk and lost around five of her calves, then she's killed for hamburgers. It's all just, it, you, you remove all that, you can go directly to the source where, where most of these big animals get their protein, is directly from plants. So I think you can see that a lot of this is motivated by a desire not to kill animals. And I think that's fine if a person wants to make that planet. dietary choice. But it's really important to understand when ruminants are consuming water and you see those water footprint numbers, 98% of the water that they're consuming, in those, that it's calculated in those water footprint numbers, is green water. In other words, it's the water from rainfall in the forages that they're consuming. So those water footprint numbers used in the film and that are commonly bandied about are totally meaningless when you're talking about truly sustainable food production. What matters is blue water, which is the irrigation water, which, by the way, is a lot higher in almond milk production than it is in dairy production. Uh, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, some kids, teenage kids, went to the Mill Valley Film Festival and saw Cowspiracy, and that was upsetting to some parents. Uh, They were very concerned. I'd like to ask you, how is that different than parents in red states who uh, were upset when Al Gore's film was showed in schools? Well, it's, there's one thing to show different perspectives on an issue, but there's another thing to show totally inaccurate, misleading information as a documentary. I mean, if you want to say, we're going to show you a pro-vegan film now, a vegan advocacy piece, and show the film, I have no problem with that. But if you're going to say, we're going to show you an, a documentary about ecology of the food system and then show cowspiracy, that's that is totally wrong and very misleading. And especially to young people, they don't have the ability. They don't see Richard Openlander in that film and know that that's a vegan dentist who has absolutely no credentials to be talking about overgrazing or overfishing or anything else that he talks about in the film. It, when you're 12 years old, you can't make those kinds of discernments. I think it's fine if the film obviously is seen by people, but it needs to be put in context, and especially for younger people who don't have the ability to understand all of what's behind the and film. I think that's what parents felt about Al Gore's film, too, Kip Anderson. And I think what's so important with this discussion, especially with Nicolette and I, there's only one truth here. There's not kind of a truth or partial truth or partial false, partial false. There's one truth. And time will tell and history will tell what is the truth. And when you watch Cowspiracy in 10 years from now, and you watch, as you watch Al Gore's film, as it was now, when it was controversial, and you watch that now, the truth speaks, the truth lives on. You can only hide the truth in the sun for only so long. And we'll see in 10 or 20 years, well, we don't even have to debate. The truth speaks wonders, and t- truth's best friend is I know, history. I understand this so is a religion. Free. This is a religion for you. It's a religion I understand this is a religion for you. Peace, compassion, sustainability is my religion. I understand that. And yes. so therefore, you've created a film that attempts to say that food system sustainability is dependent on not eating animals because you don't believe in eating animals. For the That's planet, fine. For my That's health your religion. For, for That's planet, great. For health but don't try to impose it on other people or pretend I, like this is actually sustainability. The film just discusses... We, I never impose anything. I don't say one thing. All we do is explore the truth. You, and the you time will tell. Represent yep. facts. You misrepresent people. You Drop use false it. information throughout the film from time, start to finish. Time will show the truth. And that is... That is complete. The film is basically garbage. It's complete garbage. And for you, for you to sit there and to act like this is some gospel truth, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. All right. Let's, uh, so, let's, wow. uh, I think everybody wants Kathleen. to be on the panel. We should get everybody up here. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, so obviously I'm sort of in between um, the positions that are uh, being expressed here, but I, I do want to say... Maybe you should sit over Yeah, there. I'm glad I'm sitting over on this side. Um, I think that the overall message of the film is one that um, Americans need to know better. The, meat, you know, the food that you eat, the meat in particular, has a big impact on your personal carbon and environmental footprint. As a, as a general top-line point, I think that is a really important message for people to get out there. But again... When you talk about the truth 
and an everlasting truth, the treatment of the environmental groups that appear in this film, um, they didn't get the benefit of a truthful portrayal, they, I don't think. Yeah. And, and you know neither what? did any of the farmers. Now two years removed from making the film of what we've uncovered about marketing, marketing um, uh, people spending a lot of money, these environmental groups, so we've seen a marketing program, if, if telling people just the information of what meat and dairy is causing to the, to the planet, is this a win campaign or not? And the conclusion was it's not a win campaign. So therefore, the environmental groups do not tell the truth about what mean dairy does. But, if this is not the truth but, that's shown in the but, film, but I don't no, know what it is. There's no evidence that. In fact, tell. we do. Here's our fact sheet from 2010, okay? That's the six num- years ago. The number one... Rec- yeah, it's on our website today. I the, couldn't the, find it. The number one recommendation that we make is to eat less meat. We have This is our Eat Green, Our Everyday Food Choices Affect Global Warming and the Environment. It's our guide for consumers who want to know, well, how should I change my menu? The first thing we say is reduce your meat consumption. That's awesome. All right? That's been there for five years, but nobody called me when you were making this film. Um, <clears throat> we, you, know, you asked to interview Annie Natoff, who's our California no, legislative you, director. What? We actually asked for you. Well, I didn't, you didn't talk to me. I didn't get an email or a phone call. We, or a we did ask for you, but... So you asked to talk to somebody who doesn't work directly on this issue. You didn't tell her what the film was actually about. You didn't tell her what your agenda was. You set her up to be bamboozled. And clearly you did that to other people in the film. And I think that does Absolutely. a disservice to the people who are working really hard to try to solve the same problems that you want to solve. And, and again, if you have a disagreement, the thing to do is be, be totally straight up about it and come to me, come to NRDC and say, hey, we'd like to see more messaging on your website about veganism or reducing meat consumption, or can you help me find it? But that's not what happened here. And I haven't talked to anybody else in the other groups that you portrayed, but watching the film, it sure looks like that's exactly what you did to everybody and, else. And, and that's the last... The other, fi- <clears throat> the other part about the truth of the film that will... Wait, just one more thing. And when you attack the environmental groups, we basically have a circular firing squad, and we're all weaker. And we are collectively mm-hmm. up against really, really powerful opponents. I've been going, you know, cheek to jowl with those guys on antibiotics now for three years, and it is tough. They have massive power, political power, economic power, research power. They can bring in all the lobby firms they want, and it sure doesn't help to get arrows in the back from our friends and allies. Uh, real Let's let uh, Kip Anderson respond to that, and then we're going to... I just want to say, it's, it's so important, the, the, the incredible work that NRDC does, and the Greenpeace, and the Amazon Watch, of these certain subjects that touch fracking, um, you know, of, of, of different issues with water, and, and oil, and fossil fuels, compared to animal culture, is so monumental that the analogy is used with, with, is, there's a house that is burning, there's a giant bonfire in the middle of the house that is burning, destroying the house, and it is so by far more than anything else, and you have some of these groups or some people coming in and, you know, washing the windows <coughs> or fixing a little a leaky faucet, meanwhile there's a bonfire in the middle of the house, burning the house down, destroying the planet, and this is not being talked about as the forefront, not number one, number two, not even the top three, this needs to be the number one or number two, and the silence is destroying the planet. You know, silence is the, is the deadliest weapon. And these environmental groups, as time will tell, in 10 years from now, you're going to look back and say the, the, the environmental groups are absolutely failing us, and it's a tragedy. All right. We are talking about the film Cowspiracy at Climate One. That is Kip Anderson, co-director of the film. Other guests here today are Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, a, a rancher in Marin, and Jonathan Kaplan from NRDC. I'm Greg Dalton. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. Uh, let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, my name is Leila Salazar-Lopez. I'm the executive director of Amazon Watch, and some of you might have seen me in the film <laughs> Cowspiracy. Um, so I was actually in the film. I didn't know it was a film about animal agriculture. I thought it was a film about sustainability when I was interviewed. So I was pretty shocked and disappointed actually, Kip, when I saw the film. Um, because not because of the issue of we need to get animal ag, you know, in the forefront of the environmental and climate debate. I agree with you. It's a major, major problem. The reality is I do think we need to be working together and spreading information, common information, working together to challenge fossil fuel, challenge big ag, challenge big oil, not spreading and dividing, which is, I think, actually what you've done. 
So, mm-hmm. all right, thank you. Um, Kip Anderson, uh, your film divided and made environmentalists mad at each other and mad at you. <clears throat> so, for example, that what we did is when we interviewed these organizations, we said it was the leading cause of, of environmental destruction. For this specifically, Rainforest Action Network, Amazon Watch, what is the leading cause of deforestation? By far, by far, nothing even comes close as raising animals for food. And again, if you watch the interview for a longer period of time, and we actually left a lot of it in there, it took so long for her to finally admit it. And once she finally admit it, it's one of the favorite parts because she starts telling the truth. And that's where the story changes to actually truth being told. And people who are vegan and people of, are, are all rocks of life. She's one of the favorite characters because she's the moment where the, where the film takes someone actually telling the truth. So I'm not sure if she realizes that, but she's a huge hero in a lot of people's eyes and she probably doesn't realize it. And one of the elements of that, what you call moment of truth, is that people fear for their lives, that people who fight ranchers die, get yeah, killed. And that, that was that. part of the fear. Uh, journalists have to be wary of lawsuits for the same reason. Uh, let's go to the next question from Climate One. Kip, I'd like to know three things. One, were, are you interested in apologizing to the groups that you have specifically and deliberately slandered in this film by suggesting, for example that they take money from animal agriculture without doing a modicum of, informa- of research to find out that, of course, they don't, or even asking the question. And who does it help when somebody who would stand up and support a group providing relief to communities in Peru, for example, suffering from oil spills, aren't going to do it because they saw your film and they believe that those groups really are just existing to get money or that they're afraid, groups challenging corporations that are poisoning, killing, and wiping out our partners. And these are the people we're facing, and you're alleging that, and that hurts all of us. Uh, Kip Anderson. I'm I'm actually not apologizing. What we're doing is we're interviewing, again, if you see the longer... These interviews in the longer form, the more you see of the evasiveness and the the cover-up of not wanting to tell the truth of animal agriculture... And did you start to say earlier you're going to post all of them, the uh, film? That we're, isn't... we're going to post longer interviews because the more you watch of these interviews, the more bizarre, the more covered up they are, and the more hilarious they are of what is happening with it. Let's go to our next uh, audience question. We're talking about the film Cowspiracy. So it doesn't sound to me like what you believe is that far from what the people who think you shouldn't eat animals at all believe. It sounds like we can all agree that factory farming is very harmful and that your main thing seems to be about soil and having soil be correct. So if there are alternative ways, and it would seem that there are, and perhaps animals can be alive, you don't necessarily have to kill animals or anything in order to have some excrement. So perhaps animals will still be alive and be a part of the soil but that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to continue animal agriculture. So couldn't there be some uh, common ground here? Thank you. You do seem to agree on more than you disagree. I'm not sure you can tell it. I, I mean, I've spent f- the last 15 years of my life, a lot of uh, my work has been opposing factory farming. I, I, was the, I was the person who created the anti-factory farming campaign for Waterkeeper Alliance. And I've written, as you said, a, a book entirely crit- criticizing the industrialized way of raising livestock. So, yes, there's certainly a, a common ground there. But the role of animals in the food system, I think, is, is you know, is sort of the, the film suggests that for moral reasons, it's wrong to raise animals. And I think that's obviously a point I disagree with. Let's go to our next question. In Climate One, we're talking about Cowspiracy, the film. Hi there. I'm Jonathan Gelbart. I'm a conservation biologist with NRDC. And Nicolette, in your book, a lot you talk about how well-managed ranching, if well-managed, can avoid a lot of the negative impacts that people talk about. And, and that's absolutely true. But in the scientific literature, they say anywhere from 54 to 62% of ranches are poorly managed. When I mentioned that to the Savory Institute, a representative there, she actually thought that was being generous. She thought it was more like 70%, and that's somebody who you cite in the book. And there's a lot of room for improvement, for sure. Mm -hmm. And the good news is that the improvements that are better for our climate, for wildlife, for water quality, also tend to be better for grass productivity and the bottom line of ranchers, including the resilience to drought. Do you think that we can work together to advance these solutions, including climate change solutions, which right now are vastly underadopted by most ranchers and farmers. Thank you. We've got to wrap it there. Um, 
Kip Anderson, could you see working with some of the groups that are in the film? Well, one of the things that you bring bringing up, for example, the, the, your your ranch in Point Reyes, Nicolette's ranch in Point Reyes, there's 2,000 acres. The same amount of pounds of animal f- flesh that you can grow on the same amount for vegetables in around two or three acres. So what you could do is you could you could return 1,900 over 1,900 acres back to its native forest land or uh, with all the wildlife coming in, the predators and the grazing animals to create a true complete cycle, not just a cycle of one animal extracting all the nutrients and the resources and then it goes to some human. It creates 1,900 acres of a complete cycle of wildlife coming in on only three acres. This is exactly the kind of misunderstanding that undergirds the film. Our, well, first of all, ranch is not, that was actually totally factually incorrect. We're not in Point Reyes. <laughs> we're not 2,000 acres. We're about 1,000. And almost none of our land that we grace on is farmable. It's non-tillable. That's and in fact, true. it's native grassland. The, it was always grassland, and it is still grassland. So your whole premise of your statement was totally incorrect. You cannot farm. You cannot raise crops on about 70% of the world's areas that is grazed today is non-farmable land. That's the fundamental misunderstanding of Richard Openlander's calculations throughout the film. He keeps extracting these figures for how much cattle you can raise on one uh, piece of land and then, and then how much land it takes to raise beets or whatever, and then conflating these two things. They're totally separate. Next question. My name is Donega Markigard, and I was in the film. Mine is a two-part question. One is the ethics of a filmmaker. Do you have ethics? And because you were lied to, I was lied to, Michael Pollan's words were twisted, my words were twisted to say exactly the opposite of our interview, and where I explain to you that by our management practices, we're actually producing more life in the soil habitat. Our land is thriving with animals where you can't step two feet in places and not see a red-legged frog or a newt or a salamander. And we are part of nature. And number two is, can you please take pictures of that soybean field where your milk is coming from? And can you please bring me a sample of that soil? And I will take pictures of the deer and the mountain lions and the coyotes and the bobcats and all of the microbiology in the soil on my farm. And let's compare it. Let's get Kip Anderson um, on that chart. So with about the soy, 90% upwards, 90%, 80% of corn of soy is fed to livestock. So what you're, what, what you're doing <laughs> is when you're eliminating, when you're <laughs> eliminating animal products, and again, you know, the challenge would be go on the market guard farm, if give us a plot of land and we'll produce more vegetables on their, uh, how many ever acres it is. And on the, the, the topic of wild animals, in 2014, 2.7 Wild animals, including 60,000 coyotes, over 300 wolves, 600 bears, the list goes on, bobcats, cougars, were gunned down, most of it by helicopters and aerial gunning, because mostly, almost entirely, by the livestock industry, and most of that is from grass-fed and and, and pasture raising. Uh, We're going to wrap it up here by asking each of you quickly, what's one food to avoid if you're a climatarian, you want to eat a climate-friendly diet? Uh, and one food that you should go for, Jonathan Kaplan, a climate-friendly food and a cli- climate-unfriendly food. Avoid industrial-sourced beef and eat more mm, popsicles. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Nicolette Hahn-Nyman. I would avoid uh, potato chips. They're, they've been shown to have one of the highest um, carbon footprints of any food. And I would seek out well-raised, grass-fed beef from a local farmer ranch, someone you know. Kip Anderson. Let's say anything, uh, dairy more than anything. Dairy is probably the most unsustainable. And then to avoid eating the plethora of vegetables. And you pick, you pick one. Your favorite. Vegetables. <laughs> We have to end it there. We've been talking about the documentary film Cowspiracy with the co-director, co-producer Kip Anderson, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, author of In Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production, and Jonathan Kaplan, director of food and agricultural programs at the Natural Resources Defense Council. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here in the room, most of you, and uh, <laughs> online. And thank you. You can listen to this podcast in a few weeks. Thanks for all for coming.
Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.